Do I do anything with this new microphone? Just um, hand it. Yeah, and you just so put the, the mic button on the front. The red one? Nope, oh, the one that says mic. Good morning. This is John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple, whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When, Peter heard, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved during them, no, whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is this that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, 
If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you so much, Susan. I love that last statement. If we were to write down everything God the Son has been doing since eternity, you, you just you couldn't. You'd, you'd fill up the world and beyond. Let's ask for God's help this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us to take it in here one more time. To behold the glory of God the Son incarnate, crucified and resurrected. Help us for our good and your glory. Amen. Three things I want to take away with you from this chapter. Much we could say, but three things I want to take away. Three ways, three ways to relate to the risen Christ. Number one, recognize the vital reality of the risen Christ. Recognize the vital reality of the risen Christ. Notice how our passage is introduced in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again, revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So what we're reading is how Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, revealed or manifested himself one more time in John's gospel. He is risen from the dead. We are beholding another revelation of that, as it were. Here's how he is manifested as raised. The disciples are back at the Sea of Galilee, here called the Sea of Tiberias. They are fishing. In the dim light of the dawn, a stranger calls to them. They think it's a stranger, I should say. A man calls to them from the shore. Children, do you have any fish? No, we haven't caught anything all night. Hey, try the right side of the boat. Okay. <laughs> the, the net is stuffed full of fish. John realizes, you know what? I only know one other person who is able to identify exactly where an entire massive school of fish is located at any precise moment. It is the Lord. Peter, brash, bold Peter, jumps in the water to get to Jesus directly. And then he comes back on shore and uh, on the boat rather and helps drag the stuffed net on shore. And what do they find? Did you catch that? What do they find? The risen Jesus has a fire going, and he's cooking fish and bread over it. Hey, got some fish. Put some more on the barbie. And then we get this eyewitness detail. They had caught 153 fish. That's not a little throwaway detail. He could have said, we caught a lot of fish. It was over 100 but no, it's, it's not 152, it's not 154. We caught exactly 153 
fish, a precise eyewitness detail. And then the risen Jesus says, come and have breakfast. So in other words, this is no phantom. This is no ghost, no figment of our imagination. This is the risen Christ as verse 14 confirms. This was now the third time in John's gospel, the third time that Jesus was revealed or manifested to the disciples after, notice, he was raised from the dead. Do you see the bookend with verse 1? Here's the point. I am showing you again how Jesus revealed himself as resurrected. Physically, bodily, raised from the grave. And this is a vital reality. Please don't think right now yet, have we already know that? This is a vital reality. Think of it like this. In the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln was dedicating that cemetery on that battlefield where so many had died. And Lincoln famously said, they gave, quote, the last full measure of devotion, a fitting tribute to the sacrifice that had been made, the last full measure of devotion. Apart from Jesus' resurrection, that's all we could say about his sacrifice. That's all you could say about the cross of Christ. Apart from the resurrection, maybe you could say, well, the last full measure of devotion. A compelling example of sacrifice. An inspiring model of love, perhaps, but nothing more. But because of the resurrection, because he is raised, Jesus' dying words in John's gospel have been validated. It is finished. The penalty for sin, for all who believe, finished. Because he is raised, we can be sure, you can be sure, it is finished for you who believe. We can be certain, absolutely certain, that no condemnation remains for the believer because that condemnation has already been poured out in full on the cross. This is the vital reality of the resurrection. Because Christ is raised, we are no longer in our sins, 1 Corinthians 15. Because Christ is raised, we are justified, declared righteous by God and before God, Romans chapter 4. So take this in with me. Are you here and have a nagging sense of shame for sins this week? or in your distant past? Is that you? Look, I can, I can think of things like that in my life. From the past, and a sense of shame at times can dog me. Is that you? Sometimes you think, Christ could not fully pay for that. Well, listen, because the tomb is empty, the cross was sufficient for that. And any sins committed this week or this morning, 
and the sinful condition into which you were born. Because the tomb is empty, the cross was more than sufficient to cover all of your sins. Not most, but all. Over all of them, he has proclaimed as the risen Savior, it is finished. So rest, friends. First of all, rest in this vital reality. Daily rest in this vital reality. Rest in the full and free reconciling work of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, he holds out that same mercy and grace to you right now. I urge you to come to Christ believing, to hope only, and I mean only, in his life, death, and resurrection, to bring you to God, to take away all of your sins. And he promises he will, that he will not drive away any who sincerely come to him. So come to him even now. Second, recognize the restoring ministry of the risen Christ. Recognize the vital reality. And secondly, recognize the restoring ministry. The restoring ministry of the risen Christ. Recall, Peter denied Jesus three times after Jesus was arrested. I don't know him, don't know him, never met the guy. Now, they've had some interactions since then. But now, after breakfast, Peter and the risen Jesus have a little talk. And three times, Jesus asked Peter the same question. It's often pointed out here that the Greek word for love does change in Jesus' questions and Peter's responses. But the Apostle John uses these words for love quite interchangeably. So from my perspective, it's three times the same question. Verse 15, Simon, the son of John, do you love me more than these, more than the other disciples? Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times he is asked, requiring three affirmations of Peter's love, one for each of his denials. And thus, Peter is restored publicly before the other disciples to his ministry role. And notice the ministry charge. Notice the ministry charge Peter receives in response. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep, pastor or shepherd them. Tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Now, certainly today, pastors, elders are to do this in a particular way, we are commanded by God, charged with that primary responsibility of feeding and caring for Christ's people. But there is an analogous, an analogous mutual ministry here to which we are all called. In Colossians 3, verse 16, sums that up nicely. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing one another. Not just the pastors, not just the elders. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, all of you, members of Grace Church, richly, teaching and admonishing one another from the word in 
all wisdom. That's certainly analogous to this feeding charge, is it not? Part of caring for one another, part of our fellowship together. Friends, that's ministry. That's ministry in your marriage when you do that for your spouse in a loving way. <laughs> that's ministry to your children, ministering the Word of God, massaging it into their souls. That's ministry to your friends in your home group or your Bible study. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly that you might minister that Word with real wisdom and care. There's a ministry charge here for all of us to emulate. But there's a, there's a ministry heart to emulate as well, isn't there? Maybe, maybe even more importantly, there's a ministry heart we see, the heart of Christ to restore, to restore. I, I love the fact that Peter's failures, and not mine, are recorded for us for all time in Holy Scripture. <laughs> Because Peter blew it big time, and we blow it too. That means we, those around us, are going to need restoring. Now, just to clarify something, I'm not speaking right now of issues that should disqualify a pastor from vocational ministry. Pastors who commit adultery, for instance, should be removed from gospel ministry and that probably doesn't happen enough in the church. I'm talking about when others in the church are wandering. They're wandering. They're getting ensnared in some sin. And when that happens, which it will, here's what we're to seek to do. Restore. Galatians 6.1 If anyone is caught, ensnared in any, any transgression... You who are spiritual, that just means bearing fruit of the Spirit. You who are spiritual should restore him. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore in Galatians 6.1, it means essentially put back into a useful condition. It's the same word used when the disciples in another gospel are mending their fishing nets. They're restoring their fishing nets. They're putting their fishing nets back into a useful condition. That's what we're called to do. In Galatians 6.1. And have that kind of heart that we see modeled for us in John 21. So here's the question. When confronted with another believer's sin, in which direction do you move? Toward them or away from them? What's your kind of default reaction when another believer is ensnared somehow in sin, do you move toward them to restore, toward them to help, or do you recoil away from them, maybe in some self-righteousness? What direction do you move in? A few years ago, a ministry leader in another part of the country he was not talking about our church, but in another part of the country. He described how he felt churches do this poorly 
toward teenagers growing up in the church. And I just use this as an example. He said, in his opinion, we tend to create a profile for how a teenager in the church must look or act. And when a teenager doesn't fall neatly into that profile, we can, in effect, shun them. When at that moment, what that teen most needs is for us to reach out to them with arms open wide to embrace them, not shun them, to try to bring them back in. And it's not just for teenagers that we can respond that way, is it? I'm not saying, don't misunderstand, I'm not saying we wink at sin. I'm just saying, isn't that the restoring heart of the Lord we see here in the risen Christ? I was struck by how Jesus speaks of his people, his lambs. <laughs> it just seems so tender, his lambs, his sheep. As he says in John 10, the ones for whom the good shepherd laid down his life. Brothers and sisters, that, that should be how we think of a fellow believer, especially when they're getting ensnared, right? In those situations, remind yourself, this is one of the Savior's precious lambs for whom he died. And then feel Christ's affection for them. This is something I pray for regularly. I want to feel the affection of Christ Jesus for his people. Feel Christ's heart for them. And then you can engage in this restoring ministry of the risen Jesus. Third. Third, recognize the authoritative an individual call of the risen Christ. I know that's a mouthful, but every word is intentional there. Recognize the authoritative and individual, individualized call of the risen Christ. After his restoration, Peter is informed of his death. <laughs> that when Peter is old, he will, quote, stretch out his hands, which is a clear reference to crucifixion. And tradition holds that Peter was crucified in Rome in the mid-60s AD. John confirms in verse 19, he says in verse 19, this he, Jesus, said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. So Peter Here's how you're going to die. Most shameful, agonizing death. And then he says to Peter, follow me. Follow me. It's, <laughs> it, is, it is most literally, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your own instrument of execution, Peter. Dying to yourself, and by the way, literally dying for me. And then follow me as your crucified and resurrected Lord. Well, upon receiving this happy news, Peter sees John following behind them. And I, again, I just love this. this I, I think I would do the same thing. Okay, but what about him? <laughs> How's he going to die? Verse 22. Jesus said to him, If it is my will... 
if it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You, Peter, singular, you follow me. Do you see what I mean about the authoritative call of the risen Christ? Are you feeling that a little bit? He commands, follow me. And that's what we do. That's discipleship. That's a Christian. The risen Lord commands, we salute. He blazes a trail of sacrifice through a cross, then says, follow me. And we follow down that pathway, come what may, because we are his. I read that Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines, was recently celebrating the gradual return of airline passenger volume. I understand why he'd be celebrating. And then he said, quote, as the case counts are coming down in meaningful levels, as the vaccinations are starting to grow, people are ready to reclaim their lives. People are ready to reclaim their lives. That's an attractive idea, isn't it? Reclaim my life after this pandemic. I wonder how many of us have thought something similar. After this is done, after COVID is over, I'm going to reclaim my life. Well, that's not what is being held out to Peter, is it? Or you. Or me. Quite the opposite. It's not an offer to reclaim our lives. It's a call to die to ourselves and live for him, the risen Christ. Because he, the risen Christ, lays authoritatively, lays claim to all of our lives. Our time, our money, our possessions, all of it. And says, follow me. At the same time, it's a very individual call. And I love that about this passage. Jesus had an individual plan for Peter that he tells him about here. And Jesus obviously had a different individualized plan for John. If I want John to live until I return, what is that to you, Peter? How is that your concern, Peter? Peter, your job is not to worry about him. Your eyes are not to be focused on John. Your eyes are to be on me. Peter, just follow me. See how individualized that is? And this is a profoundly freeing truth. For it gets at an illness with which, brothers and sisters, we are all infected. It's called comparisonitis. Comparisonitis. You have it and I have it. We've all tested positive for comparisonitis. Comparisonitis is the tendency we all have to compare ourselves to others. And then we inevitably indulge in some form of envy or jealousy. Someone else gets the promotion you were hoping for. Someone else enters a relationship or gets married. That, you wish that was you. Someone else enjoying their marriage, yet your marriage is grievingly hard and difficult. Someone else is having children, and you're not. Someone else's kids are doing well. Your kids are not doing well. Someone has a house we desire, a car we desire, a degree of health we desire. For pastors, it's often how large is someone's church or ministry? How effective is their ministry being perceived? It's in me too. 
Now, some of those situations are very hard. Some of them incredibly hard. And I'm not making light of that. But friends, in those times and countless others, comparisonitis infects us. It produces envy, it produces jealousy, and it robs us of joy. It robs us of joy in Jesus. It was actually Theodore Roosevelt who once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Isn't that true? Isn't that your experience? So how do you treat comparisonitis? You can't call one of our physicians here and get a prescription. You need to behold John 21, the authoritative and individual call of the risen Christ. So when we say, Lord, their promotion, their job, my job, their relationship, my relationship, their children, my children, their marriage, my children, uh, my, my marriage, their house, my house, their car, my car, etc. He responds to us with the, word, the words of verse 22. If that is my will, what is that to you? You follow me. Do you see how freeing that is? Yeah, I see them. In fact, I know them. But tell me, what, what is that to you, my precious lamb? You follow me. Eyes on me. You just keep following me. I know you too. And this is how Peter would glorify God. So make this your, your North Star. <laughs> make this your, your navigational beacon as you follow the risen Christ. Lord, help me to live for you that I might glorify you. Help me to live for the one who died for me in whatever you ordain such that I follow you and bring you the glory that is rightfully yours. This, friends, is how we relate to the risen Christ. We recognize the vital reality of the resurrection, first of all. It is finished for all who believe. Then we live for his restoring ministry that we ourselves have experienced in Christ. And we embrace, we submit to and embrace his authoritative and individualized call to follow him. May we do so, come what may. Would you pray with me briefly, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. I just want to give you a brief moment right now to, to respond to God and whatever he's been speaking to you about this morning, because he's faithful to care for you. He loves you. to hope in this vital reality. Maybe to move towards someone in this, in this restoring ministry that you yourself have experienced in Christ. Maybe to submit to his authoritative individual call to follow him in your current circumstance.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, we just say thank you. <laughs> Left to ourselves, we'd be living for ourselves. I know that's true of me. But you have freed us from that slavery to know and enjoy you. And even in this brief life, to live for you, to your glory. And so, Holy Spirit, empower us to do that more and more and more to the glory of our King. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to close this morning, friends, taking the Lord's Supper to celebrate. To celebrate what the risen Christ has accomplished, that it is finished for all who believe. Because on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, that supper, saying, this cup is God's covenant sealed in my blood. Drink from it in remembrance of me. For as the Apostle Paul tells us, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until the risen Christ comes for you. So when you're ready, we invite all who have trusted in Jesus to come to one of the serving areas and receive the bread and the cup and feast on Christ by faith. For those who have yet to trust in Christ, we urge you to take Christ, to hope in him right now, his life, death, and resurrection, to take away your shame and your guilt, and bring you to God right now. Please do so. Others, when you're ready, please come.